Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome everybody to Destination CMO. I'm so excited to chat with our guest today. It's going to be Ashley Kramer. She's the Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at GitLab, where she draws on her experience across marketing, product, technology to really position GitLab as a platform for software innovation. And her background by trade, unlike my marketing career, she actually started as a former engineer. And so I'm really excited to understand like how that technical background has really weaved into and influenced her career path and all of the different types of decisions that she's making and her overall strategy. She has a passion, though, many of us for solving a lot of the challenges and positioning and messaging software platforms to technical audiences. And in the past, she's also worked on go-to-market strategies at companies like Tableau, Amazon, and Oracle. Hey, Ashley, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think first thing starting, tell me a little bit about what led you to go into this engineering background and then kind of pivot later on in your career. Yeah, sure. So it started actually when I was younger, I was always interested in, and this is a long time ago, so the very beginnings of Apple computer and different types of technology, it always interested me. And it was a guidance counselor in high school that told me that computer science might be the right path for me to take. And I was actually one of five students in our high school's very first advanced placement AP computer science program my senior year of high school. And then that just naturally led to me going to college and picking that as my Bachelor of Science degree and my first few jobs out of college. That's awesome. And tell me a little bit about where did the interest in marketing come in and how did that happen? It was a super interesting journey I took. So I became a developer at NASA actually was my first role and a few other companies. The final one was at Oracle. It turned out I didn't really love it. And I'm actually not sure that I was that good at it. So I kept getting put into roles where I would talk about the project or I would be the one that was planning the project and super passionate about where we could take it. And so it was when I transitioned into my role at Amazon, I was one of the early Kindle team members that somebody in an interview process told me, you're not really a software engineering manager at heart. And it wasn't marketing that he said. He said, you're kind of more of a product person. Mm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I'll condense the story, but I go into product and it turns out in product, I kept thinking, well, you're getting the messaging wrong. That's not actually what we're building. And I've been talking to customers and this is how we should be messaging it to them. So fast forward a few other roles and I ended up at my former job being a CMO and a CPO. And now, as you mentioned at GitLab, I'm a CMO and chief strategy officer as well. Yeah. It's always funny where life takes you, right? And when you think about like the amount of time that people put into picking their first job, as well as picking their college major, there's a lot of anxiety and stress around like that decision. And fast forward 10 years, those decisions seem a lot lighter and all decisions are 100% reversible, but also like the career paths of today are just like not as linear as they were in a world where you used to be pensions and spending 40 years at the same company. I could not agree with that more. My 
life experiences and my career experiences were so much more valuable. So university degree allowed me to have a base level understanding of different components in this case of computer science. I did later go on and get an MBA as well. None of it was as valuable as what I've learned actually being on the job, having mentors, having a network, having a great team to be part of so much more valuable. So yes, to any college students or people going to college, don't stress over it too much because it will likely change as you and what interests you as you grow up. Yeah. And like you, I've had stints outside of marketing, whether I've worked in client facing account management type roles, operations roles, strategy roles. And I know for me, it like comes back to three different things as I'm like making decisions on the next path. And I'd be curious how you think about this, but that framework for me is like, am I doing something that I love and that I enjoy? The second one is, am I doing something that I'm good at? Because even if I enjoy it and I'm not very good at it, that's not a clear fit. And then number three, does the world need it that whatever it is that you're working on? And anytime you're out of balance on one of those three, if you're not good at it, there's going to be a performance management challenge there. If you are good at it, but it's something that you don't love, you're going to face burnout eventually. And if the world doesn't need it, then there might just not be a market for it. Yeah, no, that I have three as well. Pretty similar. The first is, am I passionate about the space? And mm-hmm. what's so of previous and in, in a lot of previous roles, it was analytics. And I'm super passionate about that at GitLab. Obviously, it's DevSecOps. Super passionate about that because I used to be a developer and I understand the pain points that developers go through. So the first mm-hmm. is just the passion about who we are selling to, what we are selling. The second is the product. Since I was a product leader and I was an engineer, I have been at companies where the product was great and almost sold itself and companies where the product was a bit hard to message around quality problems, maybe just not best product market fit. So that's the second thing I always assess is, is it a good product? And does it have more that it can grow, more that you can do with it? Usually today we call those platforms. And then finally, and this is actually the most important, even though it's third, it wouldn't have been most important if you would have asked me 10 years ago, but it is today. The people that I'm going to work with, the people that are going to be around me, Am I going to help them? Or are they going to help me learn? Because we are with these people almost as much as with, we're with our families. And in some cases more, I want to wake up every day and want to go to work. And people are a big component of that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And in the binary decision-making throughout job searches, which is you either join or you don't join, a lot of the times you often see compensation taking 50% or more of like this decision-making. And yet what I think is just really interesting about like the criteria that you and I both use. We're putting emphasis more so on like values and like where we choose to spend our time. If you think about like time as a currency in your life, are you choosing to spend your time in an area where you're passionate with people that you enjoy being around and collaborating with? And you talked a little bit about product-led growth, and I definitely want to have a conversation about that. But top of mind, I think for a lot of marketers this year is the past few years, we've been in an environment where the Fed has been increasing interest rates, which has made money a little bit tighter, especially for organizations that are VC backed. I feel like we've been living in this CMO world where all of us have been preparing for the recession that hasn't come yet. And I keep, I keep reading that it's coming every (laughs) single day. I keep reading that it's coming until a recent article where we're looking at a soft landing where it's not going to come as hard, but it creates an interesting environment as you're making decisions on budget and contingencies. 
how do you think about this environment and what are you doing to position your company and broader organization for success? Yeah. So for me, this is the type of environment where as companies look at the tools, the software that they use, and even the processes around that, it's about efficiency and productivity. So it's not necessarily, we're not going to spend any dollars. It is, what is the value we're going to get out of the dollars we're spending? And that's why I feel fortunate where I am today. There's different types of products in the world. Some I call nice to haves. I think those really suffer right now. Those are the first Mm -hmm. ones when C-levels are looking at their overall budget and they want to cut something out. The nice to haves might cause some grumpy employees, but they're going to pull those. The must haves. So the ones that you must have to gain those efficiencies and that productivity are the ones that I think not only survive, but thrive in this market. And then as Mm -hmm. a CMO, for me, it's all about producing that value messaging. Great. We can talk all day long around the specifics that the product does. What people need to hear today is the value and the efficiency and productivity gains they can get. And so We haven't had to pivot anything at GitLab, but we lean more into that messaging to help people understand that and realize the ROI that they're receiving. If you're in an in-between between the nice-to-have and the must-have, positioning and messaging obviously should be a focus to try to reorient your product into a must-have category. What are the tips that you have for companies that are really evaluating their message pre-pandemic, pre waiting for this recession period to the future and setting up there? There is nothing more powerful than telling your story through customers. And so if you're saying there's companies in between nice to have and must have, that means there are some that find your product to be a must have. Tell the Mm -hmm. story through them. Too many companies, and I've been at companies and, and been guilty of this, just say their story in their words via their surveys they run via whatever. Nothing more powerful than those customer stories, case studies, and ROI realized. And I think that's what tips you over to the next place. And it's important to get banks want to hear what other banks are doing. Healthcare wants to hear what other healthcare is doing. So you have to make sure whether you're vertically focused, horizontal, which ones you're getting so you can tell the story via something they can relate to. Yeah, I love that in terms of telling those stories because I'm oftentimes sometimes like pleasantly surprised when B2B clients and when I'm working on B2B SaaS products is just how well the clients know the ROI story better than what we would dream of or even like imagine being able to tell. As you work with more sophisticated organizations, they obviously are running that cost benefit analysis often. And I've had situations in the past where we thought that our product was an optimization play to help organizations save money. And we ran into like a small percentage of our clients that actually saw it as a revenue generating product where it wasn't about gaining efficiencies within their teams. It was actually something that was front facing on the website, proactively used to close additional revenue. And as you're talking about this messaging, It 100% is an example of on one side, it's potentially a nice to have, but if it's driving top line growth, it's no longer a nice to have, it's an investment and it's a must have, and it's a differentiator versus competitors. And it was a story that I'm not sure we would have even gotten to if it weren't for our rhythms around just checking in with clients and allowing us to be able to tell the story of how they implemented our tool. 
Yeah. And it, it helps them not only generate ideas, but also I noticed this. So I just took a trip to Washington, D.C. to meet with our public sector customers. And I'm allowed to say this publicly because it's a public use case. We just did a really great one with Lockheed Martin. And it a part of the customers that I met with were like super excited and want to do one too. The others were sort of jealous and felt like they were missing out. And they're like, wait, what <laughs> is Lockheed doing with yeah. that we have to be doing? And it, it was a really yeah. eye-opening experience for me because I was like, this is actually creating some necessary fear mm-hmm. that they might be falling behind in cases as a competitor. It was super interesting to see that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, especially when you take a look at like, large SaaS tools that many of us have been customers of, whether it's the Salesforce or like the sprinklers of the world, there's two things. Are you making the right procurement decision and selecting the tool? And then implementation 100% makes the difference between are you getting the value out of the tool or not? And in some instances, even you might have existing clients that are at potential churn risk because they're not using a tool the right way. And so often than not, you think of those case studies as acquisition tools, but they could actually be account building and retention tools as well. That's absolutely true. And and that's a beautiful partnership between the customer success team that goes in post-sale and helps the customers be successful customer marketing, making Mm -hmm. sure they understand like, great, today you're using this to develop your code and to plan around it. But also, did you know that you can integrate security and you can Mm -hmm. make sure all of that's secure? And so it's a really tight partnership to help customers realize that you can be doing a lot more and not pay a dollar more. And that's what makes Mm -hmm. it really sticky. And by the way, then you do expand in the end because they bring more people as part of the platform, but you want to make sure that they're successful and they understand the full breadth first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another area that I'm curious how you think about, I've worked for a company where our main competitor, there were only really three large players in the market. Our main competitor, the first three letters of their name basically shared the same first three letters of our name. So other than the obvious, which is like, you got to buy the PPC for your branded search. Like, what are the strategies for differentiating and how does that impact your marketing strategy? Yeah. And you're alluding to the fact that I'm in the exact same situation. Our biggest competitor actually out of the six letters just says two different. And (laughs) sometimes people just say the wrong thing. There's nothing we can do to fix that. But for me, it's more around understanding or helping people understand what we provide versus them. And I talk a lot with my team about this. I don't really like to market against companies. I like to talk about our value, but you can do that one in the same. And so, okay, they're great at this small little thing. We do that too, but we're also great across, in my case, the entire software development life cycle. So you're depositioning them by positioning yourself The letter thing is going to be a constant challenge. We get creative with features, what we call releases. We have right now an event series called DevSecOps World Tour, 14 stops across the world. I'll be in Australia for it next week. And that is our positioning and that is our name, GitLab DevSecOps World Tour. So you have to get creative. It will always occur. I was in an interview with somebody last week and they called us the wrong thing. And I know they know who they are, who we are. They just (laughs) misspoke. And I was like, oh, this is just going to keep happening. But that's the reality and we'll deal with it. Yeah. I love taking something like that and then actually leaning into it. 
as opposed to letting it be potentially an area that's concerned, using it as a strength and accelerating from it. You know, your career trajectory, you talked about the story of just like starting as an engineer, going through college, thinking, here's the path that you're setting out on. And you were not just a CMO and your current title actually has a CMSO with adding in strategy. Talk to me a little bit about that, because if I remember right, in your background, you were also an interim CTO <laughs> as well. It was. So I was acting CTO for a period of time last year, no longer. I handed that over to a great CTO that joined early this year. But for me, when I was having the conversation about joining the company with my boss, our CEO, I said to him, CMO, job, great. I'm going to build a great team. My concern is I want to go talk to customers. I think there's value in that. By the way, at a former company, I actually bought GitLab. I was the buyer of GitLab. So mm -hmm. I understand the value. I understand the pain points because I also was a developer. But how many customers are going to open their doors in the DevSecOps space to a CMO? So what we talked about is how can I get out there and have these strategic conversations with them, which not only benefits our field and our revenue teams, but also as they have another executive out in the field, also I can bring those notes back to the team and say, hey, I had these great conversations with X amount of customers. And I think this positioning might land better for enterprise. And so that's where we came up with chief strategy officer. And it's been very, very effective in allowing me to get in front of customers and they understand the value. I'm listening to their strategy. I'm making mm -hmm. it holds into ours and bringing those notes back to the teams. And so that's the genesis behind that dual title. And the dual title, whether the title's there or not, I think is increasingly becoming more important in the CMO role. When you take a look at historically what the CMO role was about versus how much it has become a lever in the business in terms of how you build product, in terms of how you get client customer feedback, and even in some instances in terms of like how client success or how customer success is done. 20 years ago, you didn't have this world where customer service was happening in a public forum on Twitter. And that line between marketing is publishing content versus actual interactions are happening with actual customers in that same space is just a completely blended world that we live in today now. It is. And I see the same, maybe this is top of mind because I'm watching the show quarterback on Netflix right now. I just think it's phenomenal. And you see the quarterback on the field as the person that's orchestrating, but that show really shows the inner workings. And I kind of see the CMO as that from a go-to-market perspective. So <laughs> not only do we have to understand and our teams, what product is doing and the message to give the field, we have to understand if it's landing with customers. And yep. I think too often we miss that last piece or we rely on others and that becomes the game of telephone. It goes from one person to the next, then it gets to me and it's watered down. And mm -hmm. so I think as part of that, it's really powerful to be able to go straight in and just talk one-on-one -on -one to a customer and then just understand if how we're getting that message to the world is landing or not. And so, yeah, totally see the CMO as the quarterback after watching that show. And I've total respect for actual quarterbacks, <laughs> by the way, because boy, that is a strategic job. I didn't realize how strategic it's kind of crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it takes an entire village and like the communication so key in that seat, right? 
for anybody who watches or listens to this show often, you've heard of our marketing career framework. It's kind of a framework of like some of the competencies of successful marketing leaders. And to your point, as you work your way up in the pyramid, bottom of the pyramid is earlier career and more strategic roles over at the top of the pyramid, like business strategy ends up becoming, whether in title or not, a larger part of all the roles. There's a bucket here that I would really love to be able to understand for you, which is that analytics and insights. What type of data are you the most excited about right now? And how does that get leveraged in your marketing strategy? So for me, what I'm most excited about would be product-led signals, which also translates to marketing. So understanding in the cases that we can in our SaaS platform, when customers are using one piece of the product, how to get them to the next, because then by the way, I can go target, my team can go target and do nurtures around that. And I Mm -hmm. think too often companies don't zero in on that when you can collect the data and understand, by the way, the product team can use it too, to say, wow, we built all these features and nobody is actually using them. I wonder why maybe we should do it differently, put it somewhere else Mm -hmm. in the UI. And so for me, that's important because at a company, particularly like GitLab, we sell to all segments, SMB, mid-market enterprise. It's powerful to have that data across all, whether it's like, hey, salesperson, not a lot of people, are logging in and are using the platform, go have the conversation because it's enterprise, that's more. Or in SMB, maybe we can bring them along and have a no-touch sales model so we can focus more time and energy on those enterprise sales. And that part of the data, that intent data, that the signals within the product, to me is the most powerful strategic lever that we have to figure out where we spend people time and effort versus automate. And that's really, really important as you grow as a company. Yeah, bringing that data together is really something that's pretty recent in the past couple of years. It used to be that you could have your marketing analytics stack, which was really focused on acquisition. But at the point that the user signs up, from a marketing standpoint, you may or may not have visibility into what features is the user or users using. And also like what features, if they use within the first 30 days, are they way more likely to have a higher LTV or lifetime value where like one of the first things I think joining any company now that I want visibility to is like full acquisition data tied all the way through to churn because what somebody is searching for matters if they're finding you through a search engine but also like the journey that they take in nurture and how they bring to life the implementation of the software matters too. And with tools like Amplitude now or the any of like the product analytics tools, you can tie first touch all the way through to the full life cycle of the user now. And it's incredible. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, it is definitely about acquisition and we have full funnel visibility in the places we can, the attribution model to that. But then it goes to activation. Are mm-hmm. they activating? Are they using it? And then growth from there. And so 100% agree. It's about thinking through the entire life cycle and not just from a marketing perspective. It's no longer just get them to a trial and to convert, get them on the phone yep. and to buy. What happens next? How do we continue growing them? By the way, that becomes easier because once something's implemented, just adding more users, getting them to use more functionality 
is yep. often a much easier growth path than going and finding more and more and more new customers. So doing those both is mm-hmm. definitely a key to success. Yeah, I'm an organization that I'm working with recently, a new product leader joined. And one of the things I was really excited about is CAC traditionally would be your CAC as your customer acquisition cost. Some of the stuff that we're starting to look at is what would happen to our marketing and acquisition strategy if CAC actually only measured people that were retained after 30 days. You're building towards a completely different goal. But from a business standpoint, what good is a lower CAC if those users are churning or they're not engaging or they're not using key features in the first 30 days that's leading to churn. And so this is something that is really enabled by the analytics, where in the past, even if we all agreed that that was the best metric to measure and like redefining internally how we're reading out CAC, we wouldn't have been able to actually even get to the data. And I've definitely made that mistake in the past. It wasn't at GitLab, but a few prior roles we created and I led a SaaS product and It was all about getting people in the door, getting all of my goals and targets in my team, getting people in the door. Well, guess what? A year later, we looked back and the CEO said to me, your product has the highest churn. Like it was actually the (laughs) fastest growing product, but it also had the highest churn. And I said, well, I wonder if we actually produced bad behavior by, by just trying to get people in the door to say we had people using it and we forgot to make sure in some cases they were successful and they actually wanted that product. And so That was a huge lesson that I learned many years back that we had to course correct pretty quickly at that company. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think the other mistake that I've made in the past as well is assuming that a lower CAC was better than not a lower CAC and not looking at it instead as a CAC to LTV ratio, customer acquisition cost to lifetime value, because in a really like simplistic way of looking at it, you would go, okay, well, the cost number that's lower is always better. But if it's bringing on a user with a lower lifetime value, then it's really like that ratio that matters more. And you might end up in a situation where you go to your CEO, you go to your CFO and actually say, hey, actually, we want this $250 CAC user instead of this $100 CAC user because their lifetime value is thousands of dollars or more or 10x as much where the investment actually pans out to be the better decision. I think that's exactly right. And that's the right way to look at it to understand, are you just acquiring customers to acquire customers? And is a transactional land model? Or importantly, what's the expand path? And, And how much can we gain in the end from that initial land? The other box on here that I would love to hear about members of your team have told me about like this customer first marketing organization right in the center of the pyramid. Not a mistake that customer experience is in the exact center here. It's just so, so, so important. How does this come to life in ways other than just like the speaking points of a team saying that we're customer focused? (laughs) Well, to me, I actually just talked to my team about this in an all hands earlier today, which is why I laughed. It is about being in front of the customer, understanding the customer. And to be honest, in marketing, it doesn't make sense for everybody to do that. But there's tools out there where our field is recording calls. There's feedback loops and cycles we have. So not just saying we're customer centric, we're customer first, actually living and breathing it is really, really important. And then when it comes to the experience, it is a question I ask both current customers and customers who did unfortunately choose to churn is what was your experience, different components along the journey 
with GitLab, what was your experience? And I think one thing that we often forget to lean into is we should, with the customers that are willing, go to our churned accounts. I just did a call in this last week and ask about it because Mm -hmm. you can learn quite a bit. And sometimes it's just things out of our control, right? But sometimes you learn something about, oh, if we would have done this or nobody was checking in on it, you can really, really learn a lot to get better and better. So hopefully that next customer, we get better and they don't churn. So it's not just about current customers or even customers in the prospecting phase. It's also about, unfortunately, those ones that are using less of us or are not using us anymore. I love what you're talking about in terms of like figuring out ways, figuring out touch points, no matter what you do within the marketing organization to get closer to customers. And in some industries and some products, depending on what your product is, like that might be harder than others. The introduction for anybody who's SaaS focused and B2B focused, tools like Gong and Chorus is the other one, are incredible. The ability to be able to hear customers, potential leads describe their needs. Like your messaging and copywriter, copywriting can't get better than the words that your potential leads are already using today to describe their own problems. But using those tools well, you can essentially run queries to be able to go find a dozen calls on the same theme in a way that just wasn't possible in the past. And I always think of, um, you know, that show Undercover Boss, where it's just the CEO goes and joins the frontline role. That's kind of like a TV dramatized version of doing that. But if your organization has a call center, and even if you're like too nervous to take the calls yourself, you could always double jack, you could always plug in next to and listen with and observe. Social is another great channel, but my favorite by far is exactly what you just described. Like sending out an email that literally says, hey, would you be open to jumping on 15 minute call? And you know, some organizations even get like tied around like, oh, do I need to offer a gift card or yada, yada, yada. And it's like, you can, but you'd also be surprised like how many people are willing just to jump on even without some type of incentive. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, last week, my experience was a very, very large organization CTO. And my first thing I said was, you didn't have to spend this time with me. Thank you. And he said, well, you all have been a great partner. It was political decision, all of those things. People are willing to do that. And on the gong chorus, I've used both at many companies. I couldn't agree with you more. We just had a new CRO join our company about a month ago. And he came to me and said, I'm having my analytics person run a bunch of queries to understand certain words and how much they come up on calls. And I was great because those words we want to come up in every call. So that will help me understand what better we can do in marketing to train the field that will help him understand how to train his managers to make sure the field is having that as part of their conversation. So it's actually, you learn a lot from the customer, but it's a great training tool as well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think it's even like, a really great training tool as you onboard new individuals to have a list of gong or chorus links where new employees can jump in and actually hear where the rubber hits the road, which is that conversation between somebody at your company and somebody who's actually using your product. We alluded to earlier, like product-led growth, and you talked about different products and whether they have a natural fit using product-led growth. So first, for anybody who's listening, define what you think of when you say or you hear somebody else say product-led growth. And number two, how can somebody leverage this to be able to grow a product or a company? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to product-led growth, I think about it 
There's a bunch of definitions in the market, but the way that I think about it is how is the product doing exactly that? It is fostering and leading the growth. So not as many people having to be from, let's say, the sales team involved in that kind of deal, not as many enablement that needs to happen because the product is giving signals as it goes. And this isn't just about the product. It actually goes all the way through acquisition too and understanding what people are doing to get to this point. I think almost every company that has a SaaS product out there will say, our biggest conversion asset is trial. Great. So what are the signals we're getting to get people to trial? But more importantly, what makes them say in the trial, okay, great, I have to buy this. And in some cases, you're going to have to have people involved. In a lot of cases, can you automate that and foster that that's acquisition that also can happen on the growth side as well. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Ashley, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today for somebody who wants to follow your story or learn more about you. Where's the best way to connect? My LinkedIn. I, I'm one of those crazy people that does read most of my LinkedIn messages and uh, would love to hear from you, would love to connect. But that is pretty much my single source of networking connection when it comes to things like this. Awesome. Such a pleasure to chat with you again today. Wherever you're listening or watching Destination CMO, make sure to like and subscribe. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts if you haven't subscribed already. And we'll see you next time. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.